The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. A big theme in the world of business and economics this year that I struggle to understand, yet has proven over and over again, is that in the middle of a construction boom, companies in the sector are going bust, left, right and centre, and no one is said to be making any money. Which, when you look at supply and demand, and also things like the massive cost of materials we have here, and the old duopolistic setup for supply, it's just bananas. Well, one figure in the industry, who is founder-CEO of a procurement and bidding consultancy, and so knows the business from both the pitch-for and commission-project sides of the fence, has a few ideas that he has been sharing as to what might be off in this particular soup. His name is Warner Cowan, an ex-RNZAF engineering officer who's taken many of the disciplines and skills from military life a place so influential on business team structure, accountability, culture, and systemization, and has used those to help build his successful 15-person consultancy. To talk construction, things learnt in the services, and empowering Maori and Pacific business through clever delivery of big projects, Warner joins the podcast now. Kia ora, thank you for joining us. Kia ora, Simon. Hey, so tell me first up, Warner, what got you into military life? Uh, I was, as a kid, really interested in aviation, and uh, you know, I was a, a Top Gun kid. I was loved the movie, um, and you know, I was always interested in, in airplanes. And so, as a young person, I was, I was, that's what I wanted to do. Um, but uh, and worked towards that through school, and I uh, wanted to be a pilot, and I actually got knocked back uh, in my my final year of school, uh, and that was a bit of a blow. But you know, I just had to pick myself up. And uh, decided to go to engineering school and become uh, an engineer, mechanical engineer at that point in time. And in my third year at university, got picked up by the RNZF as an engineering officer. So I completed my studies uh, and then joined the military that way. Ironically, um, had the opportunity to, to tick the pilot box in my third year, but I'd, I'd actually kind of fallen in love with the concept of being an engineer at that point in time. And what was it about the RNZAF that appealed to you as a third year, you know, as a, as a student at university? Uh, engineering students are known for having a good time, maybe not the fully disciplined life of um, of, of the military. Well, <laughs> um, interestingly, I don't know. It was I think the excitement of, of the opportunity, um, you know, the chance to work with some pretty uh, high tech equipment, a chance to travel. 
Uh, so I was, I was always curious about those sort of things, and um, you know, the, the Air Force for me didn't disappoint. You know, I, I was in there nearly seven years, and I think I probably lived in three countries over that period of time where I did. Um, you know, had lots of different experiences, worked on lots of different things, and met some great people. You know, my my final tour was in two thousand two thousand one as a, as a UN peacekeeper in East Timor, and uh, that was a quite a defining moment for me. I think it really re-indexed or indexed me around you know the, the how lucky we are to live here and the opportunities that are available in New Zealand or, or you know in most parts of the Western world. So, you know, when things are going down, I always kind of look back at that and go, you know, um, things aren't really that bad. Um, <laughs> And I think that was a defining moment for me. I, I, I ticked a number of boxes when I was in the service. I, I learned some really interesting schools. And the great thing about the military and uh, is how what opportunities it gives young people for leadership positions at, at all ranks. Um, the importance of good communication, uh, living by your values. It's a very values-driven organization. So, you know, you, you kind of meet a military person and they behave and, and act in a certain way. And you know that. Uh, if you interact with them, there's going to be a sort of a same outcome. And it's partly process-driven, but a lot values-driven. So that kind of set a little template for me in my mind around values and importance of process. And um, having ventured into the corporate world, where sometimes values are a little bit ropey and probably more financially driven, um, I kind of got sort of slightly disillusioned uh, around values, but have, have been very big advocate around bringing them back into our business. So, yeah. And when you mentioned there that, you know, the um, the military is a big organisation, that's a really great word, isn't it? Because being organised and having things systemised and in process and thinking through every step of the journey and making sure that it's all reliable and the same every time and planning ahead of time, all these things that are really the essence of organisation, they're what the military does so well, aren't they? Yeah, it's a really interesting concept. I think um, people naturally think that the military lacks flexibility. It's very, um, you know, hierarchical. It, it is. It does have those elements to it. But, you know, it's massively flexible and it's flexible around its process. It can pick up a squadron of helicopters, which is what I was on, uh, and can operate those in New Zealand and pick them up and put them in East Timor, uh, put them in uh, Bougainville, uh, deploy them on the back of a ship to support humanitarian aid uh, in the South Pacific. Uh, that's a hugely flexible organisation that has processes that, that work and are flexible. I think what's one thing that's really interesting about the Air Force and the military in general is you can't recruit people off the street to do the job. You have to grow the talent from in. So the process of selection of people is quite key to the success of the military. They they look at fundamental um, competencies, but generally looking at the values and the personality of the person, uh, and they grow their own competency. So it's a so really unique concept. Let's jump into that a bit because, you know, in one way they do just recruit people off the street, don't they? But they don't recruit them to do the job that they end up doing. They don't recruit a military pilot or a senior engineer ready to go. No, no they don't. And I, I think it's what's interesting about it is they spend a lot of time and money investing in the recruitment process. Um, so, they, you know, looking for those core competencies and values. But what's really important is how they induct them into the organisation. So... Uh, reinforcing those values and, and certain behaviours through things like recruit courses or boot camps, officer training. Um, so you, you, you come sort of, after that, you come sort of programmed to behave and act in a particular way. 
Um, and then you go on to generally your core technical training, which is obviously highly technical focused or whatever you choose to, to do. Um, you know, and you get taught things like, you know, how to communicate to each other uh, and how to accept criticism. I think what's really interesting in the military is that people are, you're constantly in critique after each, um, after each mission or after each exercise. People will give you feedback and it won't necessarily be nice, but it's just that's the sign, I think, of a very mature organization in which you can express and be honest about someone's performance. And I think. What's interesting is when I, you know, joined the civilian world, people were less likely to to share bad news with you. But the question is, how do you improve? How do you know how to get better? And I think that's what the military does: is that you just get used to it. It's not personal; it's just just the way it is. You, you know, we have a saying that you know, if you were if you were average, you were told you were shit. If you were an exceptional, you were told you were average. You never you never become exceptional. Um, it's just the way it is. You, and you learn to compartmentalize. You learn to get over things pretty quickly because in situations you've got to kind of deal with the facts that you've got, make a decision, and that's really important about making decisions. Um, the worst thing you can do is be indecisive in front of your teams and especially your troops. So you gather the facts, you use them to help make the decision, you make the decision. If it's the wrong decision, just gather the troops again, remake a decision and make it quick, make it fast, learn from your mistakes, but get over that mistake real quick. You talk there about the values as well that like are instilled in you and how you've been interested. We'll, we'll jump into, you, you know, the, the business that you're into now um, uh, in a second. But I think that's really interesting, that idea that you're kind of programmed with values. What are those What are those kind of essential values of the military? Because people may look, people who don't have an understanding of the services or experience there, may look at it as, um, as, as being maybe robotic when you say something like programmed. But really what you're talking about are some, some values that really are about um, the most human elements. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I think, you know, if you look before someone joins the military and in general, um, those people that play a lot of team sports – uh, you know, where they're used to looking after their friends, um, realize that it's bigger than them as an individual. Those are the type of core values that um, the military fosters and uh, encourages. I would say that most people are really hard programmed with values. You know, you're either, you really, in some regards, this is my personal opinion, either you're either good for the military or not so good for the military. And those people that are involved in team sports, um, or involved in things like trauma, which involve other people or whatever, um, have high levels of empathy, um, good listeners, um, compassionate and care about other people, uh, prepared to be sort of vulnerable and brave to to raise questions. Those are the kind of core values that are, are great for, in a military environment. Um, and in some regards, I think they're good values for me when I look for people within my business. And you know, those are the kind of things that I look for. You know, your ability to work as a team. Um, you know, we, we've got a bit of a, um, you know, one of our core values in our business is no dickheads. So we believe that um, the first best thing you can do is look after yourself and your mates. That's first and foremost. And if a client is not sort of aligning with our values as well, we think that's detrimental to our team. And we've actually, you know, fired clients on the basis of that not being aligned with <laughs> what we... Did, did you fire them by saying, look, one of our values is no dickheads and... Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just a matter of them calling and calling, getting trying to get us to do work and, 
And I, you know, they just stopped calling. It was it's happened a couple of times, um, but you know, your, your people are really precious, and you know, they're the most important commodity. Or not, oh, that's terrible. We did use the most important thing that we have in our business. And so, if I don't, if we don't take active measures to look after each other, then um, I'll lose them. Um, you know, uh, so it's really important for me. So, the experiences they have with each other, the culture we create within our business. Um, you know, and the people we work with um, are really important to fostering that. And it has to be an amazing, well, it doesn't have to be amazing these days when it's not, but, you know, we have to have some amazing experiences uh, and happiness and fun are a key part of what we do as well. So, yeah, let, let's, let's um, follow that journey to get into that business. And so it was really interesting hearing those words like empathy and vulnerability uh, as kind of key attributes for um, for good members of the military, which is not always how, uh, you know, the the, the um, stereotypes around the military might be. And also that idea about a really positive culture, which again, people may think that the culture is um, aggressive or kind of bossy or, you know, like uh, it's quite quite interesting that, um, that that's the, the lived experience. What, what was the thing there that kind of... Um, you know, after having uh, served served uh, in the military, what led you to look to kind of move into the corporate world? Um, I think my time in Seymour, I kind of realised that actually there was a bigger world out there. Um, you know, and the great thing about the military is they kind of can organise your life for the next ten years of it and define where you go. Uh, and I, I had a, a basically the next sort of eight years of my life sort of sort of plotted out, and so. I just thought, gee was I, I really do want to go and have a look at the world. And um, I, I resigned and I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And literally, uh, I jumped on a plane and um, spent the next seven years sort of traveling, really. Um, you know, we lived in the uh, UK. Um, me and my wife lived in Japan. Uh, we spent some time in China where my mum was living at the time. So I just bounced around the world. And, you know, I really, I, actually, if I look at my time in the military, my time traveling, I really didn't have a real job till I was about 32. Um, so I just kind of hauled all these experiences and I kind of fell into construction management in the UK, uh, which is really fortunate. I think, you know, the power of an OE is, is really defining in terms of giving you opportunities that you just wouldn't necessarily get. And um, so I just put my hand up for everything. You know, if I, if I could handle uh, looking after troops in the field and maintaining helicopters and so forth, I thought, well, you know, pouring concrete can't be that hard. And so uh, that's what I got into. I ended up um, doing really well in London, um, running big construction jobs. Uh, and then I joined the corporate world when I came back here in, in New Zealand, joined Downer. Uh, and that was a really good experience. I had five years there. And then I kind of, at that point, realized I probably wasn't really cut out for corporate world. I wasn't a, uh, a political player. Um, I'm not saying Downer's is political, but I think you've got to have a certain sort of, a sort of characteristics that that allow you to sort of climb the corporate ladder. And I knew that the only person that could fulfill my aspirations and desires was more than likely myself. And and that's the reason why I probably started Height. Well, it was um, six years ago now. And Height started with quite an interesting um, consultancy model. Uh, to, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about like what the gap was you saw that, that led you to set up Height into the kind of building construction infrastructure kind of uh, area. Yeah, look, I, I initially started the business to manage construction jobs, to outsource project management for construction, and um, you know, uh, you know, I think in professional services, what I've learned and from my experience is that you, you kind of almost have to get really super niche if you're going to own a, a space in the market. And uh, so I did that for a year or two, was running jobs for clients, and, and essentially what I came as back as an FTE, but on contract. And I think that was a real challenge for me. You know, I had a desired 
to you know have flexibility of time and a whole variety of different clients. And what I found was that what I was really, really good at was helping clients win tenders or win big deals with government contract uh, for government contracts. And I was really, really good at designing procurement models. Uh, and kind of weirdly, I decided that would be my niche and worked really hard to define that niche. And to a point now where, you know, we're from our professional services space where we're selling time, uh, a couple of years ago, we made a really clear distinction that we would go to a product-based business. So we started to realize that, that you know, in a, in, a, in a world of disruption, that selling time had limited value. Uh, so we started looking at products, and that's what we've been doing. We focus on selling products and experiences for clients in those spaces. And when you say products, are those things like um, workshops and training modules where um, I see from the website there are things like people can get their company along to learn about the best way to set pricing in their business uh, to make sure they're not leaving value on the table or um, pricing themselves out of jobs. And and there's a bunch of those, aren't there, um, that are kind of courses that you can just roll out on demand? Yeah, I mean, what, what we did was um, we were really fortunate. We got a business coach in quite early in the business and that really helped define for us um, the things we needed to work on. But one thing he did was really powerful with was to define our our core customer, uh, if you're familiar with that term. So essentially, where are we best to pay? Where do we get the best recurring revenues from, make the most margin, at, and have the best experiences? And at that time, we were trying to be everything to everybody. Um, we were working across multiple sectors. And it was kind of like a sort of eureka moment that actually our core customer sat in construction infrastructure. We defined that person and what were the key problems and issues they were having. And it worked out really quickly when we started workshopping it is that we were we were providing experiences um, again and again that were similar for these core cust for these core customers and that we could define six or seven products that we could continue to roll out. And and, and the benefit of that is that it really helps us to standardize the approach. So from a marketing perspective it's very clear. We just don't sell time. Here's a solution for you. It's ready made. Um, from a training perspective in terms of staff, we can train them on the product so they can replicate that. So from a quality perspective, it's it's a really powerful thing to do. Um, it also means that, you know, from the things that we do, they're very strategic, they're very interesting. We don't get sort of stuck in some of the sort of drudgery of things. Um, and, you know, the next stage for us now is once we define our product is, 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 is how do we digitize it, how to create a digital experience around it. So it's been a very progressive journey over the last sort of five or six years around defining who we are. And from getting that uh, time and experience where you're in on both sides of the the uh, deal and big infrastructure processes. So when we talk about procurement, that's when, you know, say um, uh, a, a massive project needs to be done and they need to find all the parts for it. And when you talk about bid, that's if you're one of the people looking to be a part. So with that kind of... Um, uh, yeah, what, what's involved with being on both sides of the fence? Because it's quite a small industry in a way, isn't it? Or there's not that many big projects and that many big players. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, um, we because we do work both in New Zealand and Australia, so we started exporting um, quite early on. And you know, because the construction industry, in, in particular, the contractors, it's an, it's an Australasian market. So, uh, so we work both sides of the Tasman. Um, so the story of how we got into procurement is quite an interesting one because we were in the bid side predominantly initially and um, the same types of skills that are required to understand how to put a good proposal together in terms of managing risk and pricing, construction phasing, 
all those things are really key and they're actually, they were actually really seriously lacking in the procurement side. So one of our bid clients actually introduced us to one of their procurement customers and that was the start of our procurement business because they could see real benefit in some of the tools that we provided that could help them to define a solution before they put to the market or even look at different ways of procuring. Um, you know, in the situation you mentioned in the segue around why, is, why are people losing money in a, in a booming market, um, you know, it comes down to a number of things, but, you know, contractors generally have a good inherent understanding of cost and risk, uh, and client organisations have different pressures. So, you know, how do you instill the same discipline in a buying agency than you do as, as a senior or a large contractor? So that's how we got into bidding, uh, sorry, into procurement. Uh, and it's been really good for us as well because procurement is hugely important in the infrastructure space because it can um, significantly influence the outcome. And I think a lot of client organisations are realising now is they can't outsource the risk. And that's what's happened in our, in our industry at the moment is that some client organisations are better um, prepared to handle risk. What's a good example? So... Um, just trying to think. So when you dig a hole, sometimes you might find something in a hole you can't deal with. It could be what we call ground conditions. Sounds pretty boring. But a contractor may not never know that. Uh, and they might, the client might put the, the risk on that. And so they either inflate the price or keep it skinny. And either way, the, the client loses if, the, if they don't find the, the ground condition because they pay more. Or the contractor loses if they don't make allowances for. So who's better to, to handle that risk? In some cases, the client is. So I think we've had a very outsourced risk model, which hasn't helped our construction industry at all, sadly. Yeah, as and, and that kind of, um, to jump into that kind of where the risk lives and how that is changing the industry, I mean, that, that is kind of a key factor, isn't it? And um, some really big, well-known cases of that might be um, overruns on costs of like construct uh, of um, convention centers where you know we've found we've found very big companies um, going you know who really you know are, are very good at what they do going a long way backwards and as a taxpayer where the taxpayer is paying for it you go oh that's good at least the taxpayer is not saddled with you know hundreds of millions of dollars of overruns but actually if the private uh, sector is settled with those hundreds of millions. It's the small contractors who eat it, and there's not the um, there's not the viability of the whole sector. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting points there. I, you know, um, if we look pre GFC, you know, there was there was a bit of activity, uh, but you know, the amount of work's going on in the market at the moment is unprecedented in terms of work. And you know, part of the challenge we've had around as a as an industry is this: this hasn't been enough good capability and skills and expertise to help price those type of jobs, run those types of jobs. So that's been, I think, a key part of the reason why um, uh, a lot of these jobs are, are failing for big contractors. Um, coupled with a lack of good process around how they manage risk and governance of things, how they sign things off, and also a little bit of probably win-at-all-cost model. Um, you know, it's, it's slightly alpha male, the construction industry. You know, they're pretty... You know, there's girls and guys, but pretty pretty tough, burly, competitive people. Uh, and, you know, winning a tender can be the win-at-all-costs sort of model. So there can be that kind of absolute need and desire to want to win, and then we'll, we'll sort the detail out later. So there's a kind of a mixture of a cultural and um, capability and sort of process-related. Um, what else did you mention there? Oh, and, and when you've then had things like, especially with um, – Public, uh, you, you know, public procurement models when they've been mandated to go with lowest prices in some yeah. cases. So it's a really interesting question. I mean, um, it's it's very easy to justify lowest price, but 
you know, from our experience, the majority of contracts never on a lowest price model, uh, 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 lowest price basis, never deliver on time or to budget. Things will always cost what they cost. But it's a broader question around value. So what's important to the client and how do you value it? Cost is obviously important, but, you know, delivery to time and quality uh, equally as important as well. So let's say we're, you know, we're building a road outside, you know, the, your, your children's school. Um, you know, safety has to be a, a really key consideration, your ability to drop your kids off in the morning, um, your ability for the kids not to wander on site. Those are key considerations as well. Uh, and I would argue in some cases, if we look at a lowest price conforming model, you will get what you pay for. And it may come at the expense of, you know, those that type of amenity or safety. Um, it's like that great, uh, you know, the old classic, you can have it fast, cheap, or quick, <laughs> you know, no, fast, cheap, or good. Yeah. But you can't, you, you know, pick, pick two or three. There's no way. But but I think, you know, we're, you know, the government uh, at the moment, we were down in Wellington talking about uh, what we call social procurement. So how do you affect the wider social outcome through delivery? So if some of our clients have huge amounts of money to spend, you know, one of our clients has over $42 billion to spend over the next 23 years. And their ability to affect social change through that by by encouraging their contractors and rewarding them accordingly to take on apprentices or support Māori business or Pacifica business or woman-owned businesses, um, to invest in training and systems and processes to create future primes. Um, you know, And actually what you'll find is when you look at some of the larger contractors, they do it anyway. Uh, but they get penalised on that if it becomes the lowest price conforming model. So they're not actively encouraged in this current time to actually invest in that type of stuff. But they do it out of a matter of of need fundamentally because they're short of people on the ground, so they have to grow talent. Uh, and they need the strong subcontractors to support their business as well. So they the subcontracts are important because they manage the peaks and troughs for the for the core contractor, if that makes sense. And that capability building, especially with public uh, projects, you know, it should be a key idea to, to grow what's good in the country, which is uh, a larger sector, um, a, a more healthy, competitive sector as well by having more players, and just always going for the people that can do everything, that leads to the kind of um, concentration that you get to the point where we had a couple of very big companies fall over in the last couple of years, which you know truly threatened the viability of a whole sector. Yeah, I mean... If you look at a key issue around is particularly construction sector is the amount of diversity within the market. Um, you know, there's a couple of real dominant um, big contractors, and um, you know, rightly or wrongly, they they do dominate the market. They're the ones who 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 win the majority of the work. And um, you know, what procurement does is it provides an opportunity to say, well, actually, how do we put things to market now? If we put these large big contracts to get a how what opportunity does it create for smaller business or improving the market diversity so I think that's a it's a real challenge um, particularly for councils and, and other government agencies but you know there's some really good people thinking about this now uh, and what that might mean is that you know there could be active encouragement for the primes to grow or the prime the large contract to grow more diversity in their supply chain or there could be smaller contracts that are carved out of that and given um, given to small businesses. I'll give you a really good example. We've been working in Fiji, um, and it's it's a road maintenance contract that's been dominated by a number of large Australasian contractors. And there's four key subcontractors on the island, and the intent of the ADB contract is that those uh, four subcontractors will be the primes in 10 years' time. So the Contractors incentivized to building their capability and skills to a point where they'll bid outright 
So, you know, there's ways and means of thinking about this and just doing things a little differently. That idea of, yeah, taking a really um, thoughtful approach to help grow those those small businesses, that's something that's really personal to you as well in your own journey, isn't it? Because you're involved in uh, EO, the Entrepreneurs' Organisation, at both ends of the scale with helping small businesses and also kind of learning from other large and established businesses. Yeah, I think... Um yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, a lot of those businesses aren't necessarily doing work with government organisations. Uh, you know, it's probably a different topic, but you know, you know, doing business with government is a really great opportunity. There, as a business, as is, is, is clients, they never go bust. <laughs> we hope they would never go bust. They generally pay on time, and, and the types of people in government organisations are generally pretty good. They care about what they do. Um, so, you know, creating opportunities for smaller businesses to participate in that business opportunity, I think, is huge. Um, and also, you know, I think in New Zealand, I think roughly all construction infrastructure, 27% of the market is dictated by uh, government and uh, central and local governments. So they have particular influence over the market. So if they can, uh, you know, instill a sense of, you know, what is an expected level of health and safety or participation of small suppliers, that then by nature, filters through uh, to other parts of the uh, the private sector as well, because client or, uh, buying or selling organisations will naturally default to a, a government organisation if they get rewarded uh, to invest in their people and their supply chain. Yeah, and, and and do tell me a bit about uh, on on that other topic, the idea of um, the idea of networks, and you know how how EO and mentoring is part of what you do. Yeah, look, um, you know, if I think about the success we've had as a business, you know. It started in a garage six years ago, me and my wife, and you know we're, we're a team of 15 now. We've got a small satellite office in Brisbane. We're based here in, uh, based here in Auckland. Um, you know, one of the real important things that's helped my business grow is, is being involved in EO. And I went through uh, the Accelerator Program, which is, an, which is a program designed to support early-stage entrepreneurs to scale their business. So that's less than a million dollars US is what we call an early-stage entrepreneur. And, and the, the, the foundation of that is, is a thing called Forum, which is essentially uh, a place where you come together with other entrepreneurs and you share updates uh, on, your, on, your, on your business, uh, your personal life and your family life. And the, the core premise being that all three of those things must be in balance for you to have a fruitful uh, and happy life. And as entrepreneurs, naturally we default and we get very focused on our business sometimes that the expense of our personal lives uh, and also our family lives. Um, so, you know, the key the key concept is you share what's going well and what's got not, not going so well. It really forces you to be vulnerable and be honest in front of a group of people. Um, and one of the key challenges, I think, especially for entrepreneurs, is, is loneliness. Um, you, there's things you don't necessarily want to share with your partner or your, your wife or husband. Uh, or you can share with your work colleagues because, you know, it can be very lonely. There's things that might be going through your head, you know, it could be cash flow or, you know, difficult people. So, you know, that place allows you uh, a safe place each month to, to express concerns and share how you're feeling. Um, and it's hugely powerful, you know. Um, I think it's been really crucial for me in terms of the way I've scaled my business. Like I I had no real desire to do anything um, but just kind of run construction jobs. But, you know, being inspired by these other people who are trying to go grow global businesses that was like, wow, you know, could I do that? And started made me think about things differently and gave me a broader perspective, uh, allowed me to really think about what different things I could bring to the business. And, 
you know, made me a, a better leader and a better manager as well. So yeah, hugely inspirational. And then you're doing kind of um, the same journey for others by getting involved in the early stage part of um, the the EO with with uh, companies like you were. Yeah, I mean that was um, that's a huge privilege, you know. Uh, so I'm the chair of the accelerator program here in New Zealand. So at the moment we've got about twelve early stage entrepreneurs who are going through the program, and you know I kind of listen to their stories. So you know part of that you know share what's going well, what's not going so well. And I think as you progress through your own business, I find myself listening and going, actually, I've got that problem as well. And so, you know, there's a huge amount of learning through giving, if that makes sense. So, you know, just spending time with these people trying to share experiences, because that's what it's about. You know, it's about sharing experiences, not telling someone what to do. But, you know, you might have a problem with a, for a staff member, for example, and I go, well, you know, I can remember this time when I had a problem, you know, and, it, it, you know, if you bring it context and share experiences, that's really powerful. So, yeah, I've got a huge amount of that. Um, I do mentoring um, for a number of small modern Pacifica businesses in the construction space um, and um, that's been huge as well and we've been doing a little bit of work with um, veterans out of the NZDF so um, helping them try and uh, you know look at starting a business as, a, as an option uh, you know it's not a natural default position for someone who's come out of the military they tend to look at going to a corporate environment that kind of provides sort of structure so you know getting them thinking about that and even if they don't do it, you know, straight out of the military, then possibly they could think about it in the future. What advice, uh, you know, you must be asked a lot for advice by people who are looking to make the, that move from being in a really structured environment, whether it's a corporate or whether it's the services. What advice do you give people thinking about starting out? I think it's really important to be passionate about what you do. It has to be, you have to care deeply. Um you know, I've worked with some entrepreneurs whose focus was was making money. Um, and I think, you know, you'll have limited success. Um, you know, you've got to care deeply about what you do to a point where you think about it all the time and it, it becomes almost obsessive. Uh, you know, and if you're thinking like that, you're trying to be the best. You're trying to be the best. You're trying to go, actually, how do I make this better? How do I make this better? And the motivation is not necessarily driven by money, but by kind of like, you know, you're, you're passionate about it, You care about something. Um you know, and for me, I'm really fortunate. I really care about and interested about how do we affect social change through procurement? How do we help a small contractor who's only doing $20 million to grow to a $50 million business within the next two years? I find that really exciting and interesting. So I think about it the whole time. Um, so I think, you know, starting with something you're really passionate about. I mean, if you were to look at the economics of starting a winery, you'd never do it. And, um, you know, I've got friends who started winery because they care about it. They're really interested. And I think that's that's awesome. Um, you know, they spend seven days a week in the vineyard. Not my bag. But, you know, you know, it's pure passion, you know. Yeah. Do you have any words you live by? Um, not, not really. I suppose, you know, I look at, a, you know, I kind of look at our values and sort of think they, they sort of they speak for us a little bit. You know, like, you know, we have something called challenge the norm, you know. It's it's around, you know, making sure that you just don't assume a solution straight away, that you really take time to understand the problem. And, and, the, and the, you know, the benefit we have is that we do work across multiple sectors and all across the world. And, you know, what, what different thinking can we bring? Um, I'm just not into, you know, teamwork. I'm big on teamwork and no dickheads. I think life's too short to surround your people, surround yourself with people that you don't enjoy hanging out with. Um, <clears throat> deliver on promises. You know, just if you say you're going to do something, just do it. Uh, we say we call that do good shit. 
Uh, and I think honesty and integrity are really important as well. And those are our four core values. That's what we, we, we live by. We talk about them lots. We have value stories at work. Um, we recruit on the basis of values as well. So there's, those are really important to us. It's an it's important part of our DNA, hugely important. And as a final thought, you know, like having, um, you know, had, had really kind of meaningful impact across a couple of different areas now. Like how do you define success? What, what's, what's your personal kind of idea of success and your business idea of success? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I should speak to my wife about this this morning. Um, you know, um, we can put metrics around things, particularly in a business sense, so budgets and NPS and stuff like that. Um, you know, but it, I, I think for us, uh, for me personally, it's it's about how well our team perform and how what sort of amazing um, change we make for a client. That for me is, is, a, is a huge story. So some of the work we're doing in social procurement at the moment, you know, um, you know, one of my team members, Cal, was down in, in Wellington presenting to the mural forum on Friday and, and to a minister on Friday afternoon or one of the ministerial ministers ministries there. And it was huge. I went down and watched him speak and it was just like, wow, this is cool. You know, how does a, a little business in, um, in Auckland with a bunch of 15 people like, you know, do this? That's pretty cool. And the same with um, some of the deals we're working on. We might be working in, you know, Singapore, Myanmar, you know, with some of our Australian clients in particular in, in Mexico City. And, and I sit there and go, wow, this little little business. And we had a really crappy office. <laughs> I'll tell you a story really quickly. We had a really crappy office previously and, uh, you know, we would have this sort of outward perception through our website and, and how we how we operated in the client. And people thought, wow, we must be some massive office. But we had this really crappy office in Sandringham that we were based out of. So I'm always impressed when people come and they go, oh, wow, this kind of like, you're quite small. You know? Yeah. Um, family success is an interesting one. I think, you know, as entrepreneurs, it's trying to get the balance right. And um, I think it's something I really try and work on. So you know, this this year I went away for two and a half weeks. I switched my phone off, no emails, no calls. Uh, my guys had my wife's number if they needed to call me. So it's kind of like trying to be 100% present. I've got a young family as well. Uh, and I'll try and replicate the same for Christmas as well. Just had the phone off. And, you know, just being present I think is really important uh, and 100% focused um, and trying to keep my mind on them as opposed to, you know, what opportunities and bouncing around in the future. <laughs> hey, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming and uh, telling us your story. That's Warner Cohen, the uh, CEO, founder at Height. Thank you for joining us. Kia ora, Simon. Take uh, care. Kia ora. And uh, thank you very much to Tina Tiller for producing. And thank you very much for having us along and listening this year on the podcast. We'll be having a break for a couple of weeks and coming back in early January. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by the spin off and Callahan Innovation. From the spin off podcast network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by Spark Lab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on Spark Lab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice.
A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.